0: Just before we begin, I wanted to let you know that this podcast contains some descriptions of physical and psychological violence. Please use discretion. It's been said that nations are built on stories. The tales pass through time from one generation to another. Stories that go beyond the official accounts of history. Which we know don't often capture the realities of a nation's growth and evolution. Among these tales are accounts so powerful and influential, the characters might even graduate to the status of legends. Some legends are mythical, like the gods of Olympus, Icarus, and King Arthur, and others are as real as life itself. They are stories about people, real people, doing extraordinary things in crucial moments of a country's history that change everything. Today, I have a legend to tell about my country, a tale of true heroes. And where there are heroes, there are often also villains. In this case, that's my country's president, Bashar al-Assad. Do you
1: think that your forces crack down too hard?
2: They are not my forces. They are military forces belong to the government.
1: Okay, but you I don't government. own
2: them. I'm president. Okay. I don't own the country, so they're not my No, but forces. you have
1: to give the order. No, no, no. Not by your command?
2: No, no, no. We don't have it. No, no one's command. There was no command to kill or to be brutal.
0: That clip is of Bashar al-Assad being interviewed by Barbara Walters in December 2011. Walters was confronting Assad's use of brutal force to crack down on peaceful protests that flooded Syrian streets in March 2011, which, throughout the decade, would lead to the death of hundreds of thousands by bombs or torture and the displacement of millions as a result of that violent response. Inspired by the Arab Spring unfolding in Tunisia and Egypt, Syrians took to the streets in peaceful protest to demand freedom, rights, and a better life after decades of living under a brutal dictatorship. Assad threw everything he had at the revolution, and Sid along with other underground detention dungeons, became one of Assad's key weapons to crush this revolution. And to some degree, it worked. Whoever stood up against his rule would be brutally punished. Those who weren't killed by bombs or kidnapped, imprisoned, or forcibly disappeared and tortured had to flee their homes.
2: We don't kill our people. Nobody kills no government in the world. Kill its people unless it's led by crazy person.
0: From message heard in the Syria campaign, this is Behind the Sun. I'm Nadia Al-Bukai. the Assad family rule before 2011, I always felt like there were two different versions of Syria. One for Assad and his loyalists, and the other for us, the Syrian people. In ours, Assad and his men did their best to make our country feel like a giant prison. In Walter's interview, Assad said he didn't own the country or the military. But I don't think he believes that. He acted then, and still acts today, as if he owns Syria. Before the revolution, from his fortified palace that overlooks Damascus, Assad tasked his supporters to fill the air with false propaganda about this very idea. While his intelligence and security services were kidnapping and murdering whoever challenged the status quo, Countless photographs of Assad and his father filled every corner in Syria. All day long on public TV and radio, Assad, whose name means lion in Arabic, had songs like the one you're hearing saying, Syria is our country and Bashar is our lion. Catchy sounds repeating over and over, everywhere, to make sure that all Syrians always remember who he is and what he's meant to represent for the people. And when you try to turn your country into a prison, as a consequence, you make your citizens prisoners. And Syrians wouldn't accept being held prisoner. In January 2011, the winds of change were coming fast for Assad and were set to shake his rule.
3: Massive protests over government corruption, political repression, rising food prices and unemployment forced President Ben Ali to flee
0: to... After Tunisia's dictator was removed in January, another one was about to face the same destiny. Hosni Mubarak, who ruled Egypt for 30 years, was facing the knock-on effect of the Arab Spring as well.
3: The Egyptian military has promised not to harm protesters, but as we saw today in Liberation Square, uh, this situation can turn violent very, very quickly.
0: Close friends Diab and Riyad were still in Sidnaya during the early days of the Arab Spring in 2011.
2: We started turning the radio on three times a day, even though getting new batteries for the radio was so difficult. But we really wanted to listen. We really lived on the news, moment by moment. We'd sleep awaiting what would happen the next day, wake and ask, is there any news?
0: In early February 2011, Mubarak's rule was coming to an end.
1: He is on the ground there in Cairo, where, as you can see, the situation is absolutely electric. Dominic, if you're able to
2: hear us, give us some sense of what it feels like there.
1: John, today was labelled a day of confrontation and Hosuh could no longer stand up to the 200,000 people that are just roaring their victory cry. This is the sound of a popular victory, of people finally getting what they have been demanding for 18 straight days.
2: I was asleep and Riyadh was listening to the radio. Suddenly, people were waking me up excitedly. Get up! Get up! Guys, what's going on? Hosni Mubarak fell! My God! I was just waking up. It was just like a dream. Was it possible? I looked around and I saw radical Islamists hugging communists. Muslim brothers were celebrating. The detainees were cheering. Hooray! It succeeded in Egypt. We won! It was a state of joy beyond limits. Now, tomorrow, Syria, by God, we will show you. You Syrian regime, you assholes, your turn is next. There was a constant state of anticipation.
0: In Syria, people were closely following what was happening in Egypt. Syrians were waiting for the spark to be made in their homeland.
2: Riyadh and I had an agreement that the uprising in Syria would come from a place that nobody expects. Nobody would imagine what shape it would take. People thought about many scenarios. This would work. That wouldn't. Until March 18, 2011.
3: A
0: few days before the 18th of March, graffiti appeared on a school wall at Dara, in the south of the country. It read, It's your turn, doctor. Before ruling Syria, he attended postgraduate studies at the Western Eye Hospital in London. But when his brother Basel died in a car accident in 1994, Bashar was recalled to Syria to take over Basel's role as heir to his father Hafez. But back to 2011. Like all other Syrians, Dr. Bashar was watching the news from Tunisia and Egypt as well. And so was his security forces called the Mukhabarat. Their initial response was to tighten their grip on the country and instruct their force not to allow any form of gathering anywhere. But the graffiti was a huge act of defiance. Next to the anti-Assad phrase was another line reading to remember with Bashir. It was the kind of expression most of the children used to add their names on the walls and desks of their school just to leave their mark on the place, to say they were there. But the tension was high, and Mukhabarat wanted to make an example to crush any kind of discord before it began. They arrested the two children whose names were on the wall, Bashir and Naif Abazid. Naif was a 13-year-old and in the seventh grade, four years older than I was at that time. He and Bashir didn't write the anti-Assad phrase on the wall, They had only written their names in 2009. Mukhabarat tortured them to confess that they had sketched the graffiti against Assad, and under that severe torture, the children confessed and had to turn in dozens of others as their accomplices. That has always been how Mukhabarat worked, forcing people to name accomplices under torture, whether or not they committed a so-called crime but this time when the news came out about what had happened to the children people didn't stay silent on the 18th of march 2011 the people of daraa took to the streets demanding the return of the children that act was the spark and it lit the country afire. syria's turn in the arab spring was finally here
2: i remember those days i remember that moment Honestly, I was tearing up at that moment. I really cried. Every time I remember that, remember how it happened. The dream, you know, the dream had come. I couldn't believe it. The revolution had started, and we would get out and get rid of the regime like other regimes, like what happened in Egypt. Too many ideas were running back and forth in my mind. I really don't know how to describe them. But I felt, that's it. It is the beginning of the end of this era.
0: Hope was in the air. Everywhere in Syria, people raised their heads as they felt the possibility of a brighter future, freedom of speech, and living normal lives. A country that hadn't dared to hope in 40 years was experiencing it for the first time. Even inside Sidnaya, hope filled its dark hallways and cells.
4: The revelation was a dream for me. I was waiting all my time these revelations. Because I know I will not go out from this place if there will not be a revelation.
0: Riyadh wasn't alone, thinking that the revolution would finally set him free. Everyone inside Sidnaya had the same hope. They were all political prisoners, and if the Assad regime fell, they would be free. Even I thought this way. At that time, I was only nine years old, and watching the news wasn't my thing. I watched cartoons. But on those days, I had to watch the news with my family. In the beginning, when I followed what was happening, I got scared. I felt that we were in danger. But when my parents told me that we are putting the dictator in his place, that Syria would be a better place without him and the future would be mine, I jumped off my chair happily, saying, I'm in, I'm with you. And these rumblings of change were shaking the core of the regime establishment. In March 2011, the revolutionary sun was rising in Syria and Assad was trying to block it with every tool at his disposal. Elsewhere, the city of Daraa in southern Syria was again a flashpoint today. President Assad's security forces trying to crush the latest democracy uprising. But Assad's attempts didn't deter the people protesting in Daraa or those in dozens of other Syrian towns and cities who started taking to the
3: streets we broke this kind of wall, because as I said in Syria, like kind of dictator God, you cannot touch anything near him. So you feel you break this fear. And finally, you can speak what you want. And like, you are afraid inside because you know what will happen after the demonstration. But you have hope and you can change finally we can make one step toward changing this is Ofran. she was a university student
0: during the revolution Ofran comes from a family with a history of local civic activism
3: even in university in class and anywhere you cannot say what you believe or what your ideas only between very small groups that you trust them very much and so uh, when you can speak it was a nice moment to feel you can do. On the same day, the 18th of March, fate was smiling
0: at Diab and he got good news. He was going to be released.
1: In
2: the morning they came and took me. It was a Friday. I remember that vividly. The intelligence patrols were always late on Fridays, so they took me from the cell around noon. Of course, I bid farewell to my friends, especially Riyadh. It was emotional. There was sadness and joy at the same time. I felt sad I was leaving these people behind me, but I was happy to be finally getting out. After everything that had happened, somebody could get out i was
4: sorry because he will go
2: i don't know why
4: but something uh, always inside me tell me oh he has to stay with me i wish he stayed with me Ah uh, no i i was very happy because he, he will be free now
0: Diab didn't believe that he would be freed from Sidnaya after what he had been through during the riots in the prison, but he had finished his sentence in full. He went home happy for two reasons. The first one was that he was freed from Sidnaya, of course, and the second was that he would get to witness the Syrian revolution. Riyad also was happy because he knew that his best friend would help him from the outside.
4: I was happy because he go out, because he knew who is Riyad? Who is this man? And I believe he will always be talking about me.
0: For the first time after five years of sleepless nights in detention, Diab would finally sleep well in a comfortable bed in his home.
2: The first thing I remember, my first impression, was the softness of the mattress. The feeling that you are sleeping on a real soft thing, whether cotton or wool or whatever. Other than the ground or the military blanket on the ground, which is very bad. You feel like you are king of the world. The first day, I was like, wow, I'm sleeping on a real mattress and covered by a clean blanket. I felt like a bird in a little nest, in his little house. This is home. This is what I want. Like a bird returning to his house or his nest. That was my first impression.
0: In the streets, armed, plainclothes regime supporters, known to Syrians as shabiha, were assisting regime forces to suppress the revolution. Many demonstrators at that time witnessed violence and enforced disappearance.
2: My family, my siblings, tried their best to keep me from participating in any protests or in anything at all. You paid the price. You were imprisoned for five years. You shouldn't participate. My mom told me that she cried a lot for me. So just respect my tears and the pain I felt for you. Don't participate in any of these protests. I don't want you to be taken away from me again. At first, I respected my mother's feelings. A mother who didn't see her son for five years and suffered all of this. I didn't want to hurt her again.
0: The tears of Diab's mother couldn't hold him for long. This was a historic moment for Syria. Syria was in a state of complete revolt.
2: After a while, I couldn't take it anymore. I couldn't be sitting and watching TV and seeing people in the streets and I'm not joining them. A friend of mine, a doctor who was active in the Berze and al Kabun neighborhoods, used to joke with me. In our area, the regime has already fallen. And in your neighborhood, the regime is still here? Then, once he visited me and told me, the protest will start soon. Would you like me to take you? I said, let's go. My mom saw us and asked us where we were going. We told her we were going to a cafe to have coffee and get out of the house. I felt like she initially wanted to come with us, but at the same time, she didn't want to embarrass her son. She followed us to the gate and was begging my friend not to take me to the protest. Please, come back here. And we promised her that we would not go. But, of course, we immediately took a car to join the protest in Berze.
0: Despite the brutal response from Assad, in March 2011, many Syrians expected that he would go, eventually. No matter what he did, they thought he wouldn't be able to kill the entire population, right? And so, peaceful protests
3: continued in most Syrian cities. My brother and his friend, they give the bottle of water and they stick a flower on it. And there is a small sign to say, we and you on the same side, why you kill us? And at that time, I see it as a dream. It's finally happening. And because all the time we believed in these ideas, but we cannot do it. And finally, you can do it.
0: Khufran's whole family, five brothers and two sisters, along with their mother, were involved in organizing demonstrations in another city, Daraya, in the southwestern suburbs of Damascus. Daraya would become known as a school of nonviolent activism and for a time, the beating heart of the Syrian revolution. But that also meant Dariya would be brutally punished by Assad in the months that followed. And one by one, every city that rose up against Assad would meet Dariya's fate. Khufran's youngest brother, Majd, was among the young people in Dariya who became very passionate about the revolution.
3: He leads the demonstration, and also he speaks in high voice, in mic and in kind of way he leads the demonstration. And uh, for the regime, this kind of person is important. So they want him by name, because in Syria, first moment to start the demonstration is the most difficult one. And so the person who uh, will start the regime always wants him by name because they know people will follow him.
0: Muhabarat collaborators were working day and night trying to locate the leaders of the demonstrations in hopes of stopping them or at least diminishing their impact. They tried everything. Random street arrests, house arrests, phone tapping,
3: everything. They start searching for him, and at that time he started not to sleep in our house. He sleep every day in different house, to not make the regime catch him. Like all the brave people in Daraya who marched together without fear of Assad's forces, they supported each other against the heavy hands of Muhabarat. We start a group of women to go also to visit families who have detainees and to support them because uh, my family has this situation of detention from 2003. So we know how uh, difficult it is. So uh, we start to go to that, to go to visit these families, to support them, to show them they are not alone. When
0: Sidnaya detainees rebelled in March and July 2008, the regime was in its utmost power. But during the early days of the revolution in 2011, Assad's men were floundering in their failure. They seemed to not know what the right move should be. Should the regime act as if it's listening, or should it play on division, or was their best course of action to increase violence? The reality was, the regime didn't have the luxury of time. Ben Ali of Tunisia fled his country after four weeks of protests. Mubarak of Egypt stepped down in 18 days. Libya was on fire. Yemen was revolting. And Syrian tensions had been growing for weeks now. So Assad started working through his playbook.
3: What one refugee recently asked our CNN correspondent, Arwa Damon, why is our president killing us? They ask that daily in Syria and daily they are answered with lies and with gunfire and with torture.
0: Now, I've mentioned this before, but among Assad's lies was this act of fake listening. On the 21st of April, 2011, Assad ended the state of emergency in Syria that had been imposed on the country since 1962. Consequently, He abolished the state security court, the same infamous court headed by Fayez al-Nuri, who sentenced Riyadh al-Diyab to years in prison. Assad wanted to create a new narrative, that he was serious about reforming the country, and that he was listening. At the same time, Assad started to promote a counter-narrative that protesters weren't peaceful, that they were paid by the West and other outside powers that the scenes of violence against protesters were fabricated in the studios of Al Jazeera in Qatar. Spokespeople of the regime kept repeating these lies in the media, insisting that Syria was a victim of a universal conspiracy to bring it to its knees and that his forces were fighting armed protesters.
1: I was living in Al Hajar al-Aswad, which is in uh, Damascus area, and every Friday there is revolution, protesters after Jum'a Salah, they are going out to say Allahu Akbar, yasquot Bashar al-Assad, yasquot al-Nizam. Yani, you know what is in in English? No Bashar al-Assad, no Bashar regime anymore.
0: This is Abu Ayman. He was a Syrian army engineer at that time. He had been serving in the Syrian military since 1996.
1: I see how the intelligence and the police and the army dealing with this kind of people. Because I was living there in the same area and my flat was the last flat. Okay, so I can go to the roof and I see what is happening. They choosing the military or snipers, but from where these snipers, nobody knows. I saw them. I saw them on the other roofs. Snipers belong to the government, to the regime, and they didn't shoot. For example, they didn't shoot anyone from the protesters who's carrying the, the labels or flag or he's shouting. No, they choose one kids for 10 or 12, 11 years. They choose a big woman. They choose a very old man. They, they are shooting just to make the people very angry from the situation.
0: These actions were repeated everywhere in Syria. Eight days after abolishing the state of emergency, a child named Hamza al-Khatib, who was 13 years old, was participating in a protest with his family in Daraa. In the chaos of the shooting, Hamza's family lost him between the panicking protesters. When things became quiet, they searched for his body in the streets, but didn't find anything. They searched for him at home, in the alleys, everywhere, There was no trace of him. They later found out that the Air Force intelligence had taken 13-year-old Hamza behind the sun. He was held inside a secret detention center. Weeks after his disappearance, Hamza's body emerged in the morgue, mutilated and showing horrible signs of torture as well as bullet marks in the chest. Little Hamza became the first high-profile case of forced disappearance and death under torture in the Syrian revolution. This horrendous crime showed the Syrians and the world that Assad lied about the reform, but he carried on anyway. On the 31st of May 2011, two and a half months after the start of the revolution, Assad announced his first presidential pardon after 11 years of presidency. He started to empty Syria of radical Islamists by reducing their sentences or pardoning them altogether. Zahran Al-Lush, who would later command a jihadi legion called Jais al-Islam, was released. Hassan Aboud, who would later lead another jihadi militia coalition called Ahrar al-Sham, was released. Asa Sheikh, who would later lead sukour sham brigades, was released. The three were known to some scholars as the Sidnaya Company, and dozens of other extremists, who would later join ISIS, were, like the previous names, all discharged from Sidnaya and other detention centers, on the same day, the 31st of May 2011. He was creating division in the country,
4: I was the last one in Saidnaya with my uh, few friends. They came and carry us to the Damascus Central Prison. It's like to carry somebody from the hell to the heaven. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know it is a prison, but it was different. Saidnaya was like, look, a hell. Because I stayed after the riot. I stayed three years in one cell, the door was closed. I didn't saw the sun at all, at all, for three years, uh, just in a place for 75 centimeters. For three years, I sat there, no moving. After they carry me, to the central prison in Damascus. For the first time, I saw there the sun. I looked up and I saw the sky, a blue sky. I was forgetting the sky itself, how it is.
0: Riyad wasn't freed from Sidnaya like the radical Islamist detainees. He was sent to Damascus' central prison, which is widely known as Adra.
4: There was a phone in Adra. I called him immediately. Oh Diab, I am now in the other prison. He said by your God, did you say the truth you are in other prison? I said okay, I am in other prison and they promised us to they will let us out. Okay we will be freed Diab. He said okay I will come immediately.
1: I
2: wanted to go and see him. I mean, this is Riyadh. I could not not go. My dad heard me talking on the phone and insisted on coming, saying, I won't let you go alone. I consider Riyadh as much as son as you are. So I accepted. At that time, my dad knew a little bit about my activism in general. So on the way to the prison, he asked me not to make a hero of myself with Riyadh, saying, Just shut up about it. Let's get through this safely. When Riyadh came, I saw him laughing. He was so happy about my father's visit. The happiness I saw in him meant a lot to me. The idea that you are not alone and never will be. I will not leave you alone. I'll keep coming until your deliverance. I felt relieved that I was not abandoning my friend who remained in prison. I wouldn't leave him. Never. Ever.
4: I like his father. I like the old man. I wish my father came and visit me. But I was afraid my father to see me there.
2: My father felt the same way. On top of the fact that he was a friend and like a son to him, he was also a foreigner in this country. It's not his country. It's not his homeland. And he was in a bad place. So we couldn't leave him. And indeed, we kept visiting him. I started to go alone sometimes without my father. I visited Riyadh every month, once or twice. Sometimes he would call me, telling me, bring me some books and come over.
0: Asad was emptying Naya to make room for other people. To collect them, his muhabarat started hunting. In the mind of Muhabarat leaders, the existential threat to the regime has always been peaceful Syrian activists. And the regime wanted those people to be completely out of the equation.
3: He was in Damascus, not in Daria. And when he arrived to Daria, the demonstration now is finishing. And the Assad force coming to Daria to uh, stop this demonstration. So they start beating people. At that time, uh, directly he went to there to demonstration. This uh, guy called Islam, they beat him in the street. So he went trying to help him and they catch him uh, with his car also because he drove to this place to help. Abdesatar drove to this place to help and they catch him because he is helping.
0: Abdesatar is Ofran's older brother. The family called him Abed.
3: Abed was the person who, for me, the person who can, I ask him for anything and he can bring me what I want. Because there is a like a gap edge between me and him, but uh, this kind of father who, uh, like, spoiled you.
0: <laughs> for weeks after the enforced disappearance of Abed, his car was seen moving around their city. Abed wasn't the one behind the wheel, though. Every time the car passed by them, a different Assad thug, Shabih, or militiaman, was driving it. The family feared that Muhabarat would punish Abed because of his youngest brother, Majid, who was wanted by Assad intelligence for leading the protests.
3: We have this fear, and we hope not to happen, but... I think it's happened because when they talk him, you don't know what happened after. Only you start research and collect information from people who saw what happened because not allow for any Syrian to ask about detainees, where he is, or what happened, or if we can see him. A friend's family, Abid was taken by the notorious Air Force
0: intelligence
3: we start to go to the place where they catch him and we ask people who saw what happening to be sure what happened. We ask the person what did he see and if uh, he can tell us something. Uh, Also after that we tried uh, to help him to know if we can help him but after only when we are Very sad and busy with the abid and what's happening. Another tragedy happened that they catch Majid.
0: Majid hadn't been staying in the family house since he knew that Muhabarat henchmen were after him. As I said before, he was very cautious, but caution wouldn't protect Majid for long.
3: They arrest Majid in in the following months after uh, Tidin Aboud. Majid was forced to give himself up as his friend had earlier been arrested by the Mukhabarat who had uh, threatened uh, to kill him unless my brother Majid give himself up. In June 2011,
0: Three months after the beginning of the peaceful revolution, the regime's violence against protesters had reached new bloody levels. And Syrian army tanks filled the streets where protests were taking place. After weeks
2: of being ordered to fire into crowds, more and more soldiers don't want to shoot anymore. Many are defecting and
0: fleeing. Refusing orders to fire into their countermen and women, some soldiers started defecting. Some would go to neighboring Turkey, while others would join the ranks of protesters, using the weapons they fled with to defend themselves from Assad's tanks and snipers. This phenomenon would later become known as the Free Syrian Army. When the Syrian army began to show signs of disintegration, Assad turned to his Axis of Resistance allies, Iran and Hezbollah, for backup.
1: I saw the Iranian trainer, coming to the military school, training uh, the Assad militia how, how to defeat the protesters, how to kill the protesters using the motorcycle. Even I saw more than 100 motorcycles in the military school. And they uh, asked for a huge amount of ammunition to train them.
0: The war drums were rolling for Assad. He wanted an armed conflict from the beginning, and now he got it. A war that would blur the lines between right and wrong and allow him to look like a legitimate president defending his country from the insurgents. Every chess piece was in place on Assad's war table. Armed rebels, radical Islamists and jihadists and Iranian soldiers and Hezbollah militias. Assad unleashed hell upon his people. He threw everything at them. Barrel bombs, air bombs, and plane machine guns. On the ground, his tanks and militiamen burned the streets to the ground. The slogan, Assad or we burn the country, which was chanted by Assad's loyalists in Shabiha, would later become a reality. And away from the cameras and the eyes of the world, his muhabarat went on to wage a silent war on the people.
3: They brought Majid on the street of Daria and they forced Majid to call uh, a lot of his friends. They tried to catch people the same way, but the news was uh, that Majid catch. So there is was kind of shifra or code, a regular word. If you use it in some way, that means the regime with you or they catch you. And I know that from my brother. I called him directly because I heard this news and I hope it's not correct. So I was happy when the, his phone rang. Because usually muhabarat makes the phone not work. So I said, oh, he is safe. But when he answered hello uh, and second word, when he said, I know that he's not, not this his voice. And I said to him, are you safe? And he said, yes. Even he said, yes, I, th- I know from his tone and from his personality, I know he is not safe. This tactic
0: of luring activists from hiding using phone calls from friends was used often by the intelligence forces at the time. A primary example in the city of Daraya itself was 24-year-old Hayath Matar, one of the icons of the Syrian revolution. Hayath was a lead organizer of the protests during which roses and water bottles were handed out to soldiers that Assad sent to fire at protesters. His trailblazing, peaceful activism earned him the nickname, Little Gandhi, but it also sealed his fate. A brother of Gayath's friend was forced by muhabarat to call Gayath asking for help, and even though he suspected it was a trap, Gayath went anyway. Days later, Gayath's dead body was returned to his family bearing signs of torture. Assad's muhabarat went on to kidnap, disappear, and torture more, filling Sidnaya and other detention centers with activists, politicians, defected soldiers and officers, and ordinary citizens whose only crime was being from an area that rose up against Assad. To them, every remaining non-violent activist, like Riyath and Majid, was a potential target. Forced disappearance became a weapon to instill fear in the hearts of Syrians. Do you feel guilty?
2: <laughs> I, I did my best to protect the people, so you cannot feel guilty when you do your best.
0: Assad laughed at the question. Of course, he didn't feel guilty because he had done his best to protect his people. And by his people, he means his regime, his mokhabarat and his loyalists, not us. He tried to eradicate us or remove us from existence. But as I said at the beginning of this episode, nations are built on stories. When I tell the story of the Syrian revolution, I will always remember Diab and his father telling Riyadh in prison that everything will be okay. Soldiers and officers refusing to participate in the bloodshed. Thousands of people like Afran and her family marching in the streets despite the disappearance and abduction of their loved ones. Majid, Abed, Hamza, Ghiath, and thousands of peaceful protesters like them. I will tell people about Kafr the tiny town in northern Syria that became known around the world for the witty banners carried by its sons and daughters on Friday protests. I will talk about the White Helmets, ordinary men and women across Syria who rush into the aftermath of bombs to pull civilians from under the rubble. I will talk about the heroic doctors and nurses who, after the systemic, deliberate targeting of hospitals by the Syrian regime, moved hospitals underground into caves and basements to continue saving lives. I will also remember my feeling when I was nine and was holding my father's hand in a demonstration in our village for the first time in our lives. I remember asking him if I could clap and chant with the people, and him saying, of course. I remember how I screamed, how it felt so good to be angry at Assad and his regime, and exhaling his existence and fear off my chest, to say no aloud. Some would say the Syrian revolution is like the legend of Icarus in Greek mythology. Icarus had wings made of wax and feathers to help him escape from imprisonment. He liked flying and kept going up, but he got so close, too close to the sun. The bright star melted the wax that had kept his wings, and Icarus fell towards the water. But our Icarus hasn't died yet. Despite the damage in his wings, he refuses to give up. He's trying to get back up again. Sirius Icarus hasn't ended his journey yet. And so does Riyadh, Diab, Ghufran, and Abu Their stories haven't ended yet. Next week on Behind the Sun, we will continue with Ghufran and Abu Imad in the underground network of prisons run by Assad's Mukhabarat and we will learn more about Riyadh's health and Diab's luck that saved him from death. Behind the Sun is a co-production between Message Heard and the Syria Campaign, in collaboration with the Association of Detainees and the Missing, ADMSP, and the Syrian Center for Justice and Accountability, SJAC, under its project On the Margins No More. The series is written and produced by Mohamed Farouk, Thank you to Ronim, Ola, Sara, Mays and Rory from the Syria Campaign and Raha from ADMSP for helping put this series together. VoiceOver for Diab was presented by Mahmoud Nawara. Editing, mixing and sound design was done by Eric Zaba and Ivan Eastley. Additional production support from Molly Freeman, Tom Biddle and Lincoln van der Vesthazen. Sandra Ferrari is the executive producer. The theme music is by Milo Evans. My name is Nadja Bukai.